This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of The Overcomers, God's Vision for You to Thrive in an Age of Anxiety and Outrage, written and narrated by pastor and best-selling author Matt Chandler, and is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. Hey folks, Dr. Jamar Tisby here. Welcome to the Footnotes Podcast. If you're not familiar with podcasting, you haven't recorded a podcast before, let me let you in on a little secret. Sometimes the best parts of a podcast happen either just before you start recording or right after you finish. In this case, I was talking to my good friend and fellow black scholar, the Reverend Dr. Malcolm Foley, and we're talking about the issue of presentism, presentism in historical studies. If you've never heard of it, don't worry. We unpack it all. We define it. We explain it. And we talk about some of the racial dynamics that are involved in it. Anyway, as I was giving him the context for this podcast, Dr. Foley just started dropping nuggets, just gems. And so I simply pressed record. So there's not much of an introduction here. We had some incredible conversation uh, right at the beginning. And so I said, let's just dive right in. This is your introduction. We're talking about the real problem with presentism. Hope you enjoy. Greetings, Reverend Dr. Malcolm Foley. How are you? Good to be with you. I'm doing I'm doing well. Doing well, Jamar. It's good to see you. Well, you're constantly fighting the good fight, so I know that's exhausting and wearying. And here we are. We've got another controversy, issue, topic, uh, kerfluffle to discuss. So let's dive right in. This, um, this is one of the first episodes I've done really talking about history as a profession, uh, as, as a discipline. So I often talk about history and the narratives that go with it. But this is going to be sort of a meta conversation, sort of a conversation about how historians do their work. And it was all sparked off recently when the president of the American Historical Association, which is one of the biggest historical associations in existence, he put out a letter in the AHA's magazine, Perspectives, and he was talking about this issue of presentism. Presentism is a big, scary word in historical studies, even though most people probably have never heard of it. So I'm going to give my brief interpretation of what presentism is, why people are concerned about it. Then I would love to hear what you think. So um, I, I kind of think about presentism the way that uh, biblical interpreters think about exegesis and eisegesis <laughs> as a comparison. In, in biblical interpretation, pastors will talk about this, theologians will talk about this, Bible scholars will talk about this. They'll they'll differentiate differentiate between exegesis and eisegesis. So exegesis is where you take you have the biblical text and you draw meaning out of it. In other words, the text is your foundation. It's supposed to be the sort of biblically faithful way of interpreting scripture. Eisegesis, on the other hand, is you are importing your own meaning into the text. And so wherever you're coming from, whatever your political or social or cultural persuasions, you are inserting that into the text and and sort of ex post facto using the text to justify your point of view. In a similar way, 
that is the argument about presentism, I think. So presentism is saying essentially that you are using history as a tool to basically interpret the present. But to go further, because even the folks who are scared of presentism or concerned about it would say, of course, the, the past informs the present. That's not the fundamental issue. What they're fundamentally concerned about is that our present frameworks, culturally, morally, politically, are being imported into our historical studies such that it's distorting the narrative and the interpretation of the events. So again, uh, instead of going to the primary sources and drawing meaning out of them according to sort of the historical actor's own time periods and frameworks, we are importing our own understandings into the text, which of course would, in their view, distort our understanding of history. So that's my stab at, uh, you know, explaining presentism for, for non-historians. What would you add or how would you define it? No, I think that's, I think, I think that's right. One of the things that came up particularly in this, in this discussion was an understanding of history as understanding people in their own time. That's, that's one of the kind of more popular ways of seeing, particularly the discipline of history. Part of this, part of this discussion is also about like, how do you define a particular academic discipline? How do you how do you separate, for example, history from sociology or or any or any one of the other um, or any or one of the other often called soft soft sciences? Um, and so and so I think there's there's a there's a little bit of that there's a little bit of that going on there going on there too. But yeah, the fear is that you know that we're that we're importing our modern concepts into 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 periods of time where they wouldn't be intelligible. Um, I think about this. I think about this specifically. Um, you know, when we think about race, particularly. I made this. I made this comment in in uh, in the uh, in the piece I wrote. But um, sometimes, like for example, if I call um, if I call any any racialized chattel slaveholder racist. Some so, somebody will respond. Well, you're importing. You're importing a category, um, and I'm like, no. I'm. I'm. When I. When I. When I define this term as 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 um, in thinking about ideas or actions that tend toward the that tend toward the death of or statement of the inferiority of black people. That's something that it it's it spans beyond. Like it spans beyond today. Obviously. Um, and when I look back and I and and we can look back in history and see it. And for me, if I see it, I'm going to call it what I what I what I see. So I think that's I think that's I think that's important too. But yeah, but the fear about presentism, I mean, it, it it's it's legitimate in the sense that we don't want to, um, you know, we don't we don't we don't want to impose we don't want to impose upon the past. But one of the other points that I, that I want to make in the piece is that. Um, there are some historians that will press how much of a foreign country the past is. And my thing is, especially, I mean, both, I mean, especially theologically, um, I actually do have a lot in common with people around the world and throughout time by nature of the fact that we're human beings created in the image of God mm. um, with, with, with similar temptations, uh, but different resources to act upon those temptations. And so I want to be very clear about the ways in which we're different which are many ways, but then also clear about the ways in which we are actually the same. Yeah. Um, so, so history is not, 
is often not as not as foreign as it initially appears. And that's one of the things that continues to, I think, draw new students into it is that you start to see people throughout time dealing with the same, dealing with very similar questions to the ones that you're dealing with. So. That's right. That's right. And there's so much to say here. One of the things that's almost a truism, uh, all scholarship is autobiographical. And so many times, whatever field or whatever discipline could be psychology, life sciences, history, what people are interested in studying somehow meaningfully intersects with their own life story. Something that happened to them, something they observed, something they experienced, and, and, and that's what drives and motivates them. And that's not something I, I think we should shy away from, something we should be honest about, something that we should admit our, our possible biases about and, and give honest scholarship. Now, one of the things that makes the presentism topic so divisive, so volatile, is that it's often leveled at historians who are studying certain aspects of history, such as uh, race, gender, class, and you can name some others. So in other words, it is when historians are looking at those people and those events and those organizations that have typically been marginalized, somehow excluded from the historiography, from the historical narrative, that's when these charges of presentism start to come out. Um, so, you know, that's an added issue and, and, and wrinkle to this thing that, 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 that makes it high stakes because to level the charge of presentism and to say that we can't do these certain things or make these certain moves like calling white supremacy, white supremacy in its time, right, uh, is then to, to possibly replicate the silences and the overlooking of this important history, which has only really begun to, to, to be recovered uh, by historians. There's so, still so much more work left to do. Yeah, no, I think that's 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 absolutely right. Yeah, it, I I mean, as I you know, even 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 as I, as I think about how I how I started my own uh, my own research on 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 lynching when I wrote the dissertation, it was it was because you know I wanted to elevate the voices of particularly black people who had been resisting lynching throughout throughout its height uh, because I looked at the scholarship and I was like. It, this seems to focus mostly on white people. I'm worried about the like, I'm worried about the people who are like actually dying, uh, right. not the not the kind of convoluted ways in which people are trying to justify killing one another. Um, I, it, it's a different uh, like even as I think about the health of my the health of my own soul. Um, that's a it's a much more healthy it, it, it's much more healthy for me to study resistance, which which means I have to go into which means I have to. Which means I have to study spaces um, that have often not been not been studied, but it's much more healthy for me to do that than to look at the history of justification of those evils. So, well, well let's let's just talk about the the piece first of all. We'll link to it. You should read the the piece by Doctor Sweet. He's a historian at uh, University of Wisconsin Madison. He's got a one year appointment as uh, president of the AHA. My reaction was it was scattered. Like I, <laughs> he named a lot of issues in my view and didn't really explore them. So one of the issues that he named was historians aren't studying the 
ancient past or the pre-modern past enough. So he's he's talking about, uh, he said, as the discipline has become more focused on the 20th and 21st centuries, historical analyses are contained within an increasingly constrained temporality. What I think he's saying is because of the urge on the what he interprets as the urge on the part of many historians to understand the present, they're only um, researching the recent past rather than a past that's more chronologically distant. So that's a trend that 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 he was um, naming. But then he also talks about the 1619 project, everyone's favorite, you know, uh, uh, um, victim or or target, I should say. And then uh, he goes on and talks about his his journey to Ghana and how a tour guide did not name or emphasize uh, the role that Africans played in the uh, the slave trade, race-based chattel slavery. So it was all over the place. But yeah, you were going to say something about the 1619 Project. Yeah, it's something that it's something that like that that, that people like to poke at because of the particular narrative that it that it pushes forward about about American origins because this is something there's a there's a myth there's a there's a myth that people are are very are very very attached to um, and I think when the when the 1619 project came came out specifically looking at I mean the entirety of American history and the and the ways in which slavery has has shaped its entirety uh, it, it was a shock to some folks it was a shock to some folks who had a particular understanding of American exceptionalism. Um, in a in a positive way, uh, when you have a number of historians who are now who are now doing work on on American exceptionalism, uh, exceptionalism in its in its in its negative in its negative forms, for example, I mean you have the ways uh, the ways that the the settler colonialism that founded the country was something that was also uh, was also copied by by other by by other imperial nations. I mean you look at even the history of lynching. When you have countries around the around the world that are looking at that are looking at this happening in the South, and they're like, "Seems to only be happening in America." That seems to, mm-hmm. that's a pretty that's a pretty big deal. Um, but but there's also but there's also the fact that um, you know I think I think we're I think particularly in this country we're 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 uncomfortable uh, with not being the hero of our own of our own story. It's a, For sure, it's a very it's a very human it's a very human thing. Mm-hmm. But but historians are supposed to be here to 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 remind us, hey, we're not a uh, not always the hero of our own story. When we look at when we look at the data, that's we've got to be we've got to be beholden to where that to where that right. to where that takes us. Which which might mean that we have to listen to non dominant non dominant voices. I mean, it not just might mean that it definitely does. <laughs> it definitely does. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. That's right. Um, and. The sixteen nineteen project is important to remember was not primarily a work of history for academic historians. Yes, you had ac- academic historians who contributed to it, but it was a it was a popular piece of journalism meant for a broad audience, and it was meant to offer the perspective, which is not uncommon. I mean, it's 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 already pretty well trod territory in historical studies that. Race-based chattel slavery was at the historical foundation of the nation, meaning it was present there and played a critical role in shaping the culture, the politics, the 
economics of the fledgling nation such that it has to be understood, it has to be contended with, it has to be dealt with if we are going to understand the origins of the of the nation and where we are now. So it's actually it, it, it was not really even a new thesis, but the way it was presented and the um, breadth of the audience was new. So it was just, I mean, the piece itself, I just didn't think, I mean, he could have taken any one of these issues that he listed and expanded on it, and it wouldn't have garnered perhaps so much opposition. At least it would have been a more tightly argued piece. So I, mean, I think I think there's another <laughs> I mean there's another element. I mean even when he so he he lists out uh what he sees as the kind of contemporary social justice issue. Yes. Go ahead. Um and he names specifically race, gender, sexuality, nationalism, capitalism. And and there and, 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 and there's there's there there are a few there are a few things there like first of all none like none of those things came into being in a contemporary setting all of those things are are histor- are are historically formed and constructed and so and so if we so so if we're to if we're to place if, if we're to attempt to place something outside of um, outside of historical purview, that those are not the places to go. And this is and, and this is and, and and this is the point that I that I that I wanted to press in my in my short piece. It's like ra- we need historians to remind us that race is a is a historical development and a historical construction. We need we need to understand that capitalism and and whatever economic forms that we find ourselves in are historical constructions. These aren't just kind of eternal concepts that we just <laughs> that we just decide at a given point to uh to focus on because they're contemporary social justice issues also um i don't know why something being an issue of social justice is a reason for it for it not to be approached historically uh, <laughs> especially when especially when 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 robust historical framing allows us to understand why why things are the way they are why they why they've continued in the way that they've continued so this is the other point when you emphasize that history, and this is and, and this is something that I that I that I learned particularly uh, when I did a little bit of uh, a women's history work when I was doing when I was doing the PhD, was that it is a, it is as important for historians to tell the story of why things change as it is for us to tell the story of why things stay the same. And so and so this so this so this emphasis on on needing to narrate change over time. Well, sometimes things don't change over time, mm. and sometimes we need to. St- Sometimes we need to narrate why those things why those things don't change. So sometimes we have to narrate how 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 resilient particular systems are, how resilient people how resilient people are, even in the midst of even in the midst of shifting norms and things and things like that. So um, so even there, I think it's important for us to broaden our understanding of history as not just why things not not just why things change, but also why things stay the same. What's interesting is that. After the piece came out, I mean, within a day or two, uh, there was a massive, I mean, it was trending on Twitter, okay? Like, these internecine debates among historians never get out of (laughs) our small little circle. But now this thing was trending on Twitter with, like, 1619 Project and presentism and, and, and those key words. And so 
very soon after the piece went live, Dr. Sweet published an apology. He tried to uh, explain what he was doing. He said, um, it's generated anger and dismay among many of our colleagues and members. I take full responsibility. His purpose, he said, was I had hoped to open a conversation on how we do history in our current politically charged environment. Instead, I foreclosed this conversation for many members causing harm to colleagues, the discipline, and the association. What's also interesting <laughs> is after he posted the apology, the AHA had to restrict its Twitter account. It had to um, basically uh, lock its account and restrict it only to people who were already following it because there was so much bad faith conversation trolling. There was so much trolling going on, including, and this is what people said would happen when you, you identify presentism with addressing issues of race and gender and class and those things that you listed before. They said, and this is what happened, that that white supremacists and the far right would latch on to it and, and basically um, pile on and say history has become woke or, you know, inundated by critical race theory or however they want to demonize it. And sure enough, even Richard Spencer, the white supremacist, made a comment. And so they closed the... Um, I mean, the account is still there, but it's closed to to people who weren't already following the account. So that tells you just how massive a response there was. What did you think of Dr. Sweet's apology? Uh, <laughs> I mean, you know, I, I mean, my first question, this is a good faith question too. I just, I wonder what what precipitated the apology so like so like what is is it is it something that he saw was it because of feedback that he was getting from um uh whether whether it's kind of the leadership of the aha or stuff like hey we need to do some damage control um because like it's it's just a and, and and i think we saw this we saw this from the from the critiques i mean he's done like he's like his his historical work is great and then to see and to see something like this was also just confusing for a lot of people they're like what do you like what huh <laughs> what are you, what's going on what's going on here yeah so i mean you're asking what prompted the apology on his part yeah because even even in looking at the piece there was there was very little kind of citation of particular arguments or things like that it was just it was just kind of a a thrust of the initial piece was you all know what i'm talking about when i talk about basically this basically this new influx of historians who are claiming to be historians who are really just doing this work on race gender and sexuality and stuff and like and all of us real historians are basically we're basically all us all of us real historians are now are now being marginalized and this is and this is going to end in kind of the collapsing of the discipline and things like that so we all need to we all need to rededicate ourselves uh to real to real history um and then uh and then students will you know students students will return to our classes we'll see this see this kind of renaissance of the discipline and things like that but once these uh once these interlopers who keep talking about race and capitalism and stuff ah 
getting in the way. Let's just do let's just do real history, Jabbar. Real history, quote unquote. Right. And and so so some people were upset that he made the apology at all. They 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 read the piece and they thought there was nothing controversial at all. Uh, and many many of those folks were far right people who were not historians just kind of piling on and jumping in the conversations. Others had questions like you did. Um I appreciated the fact that Dr. Sweet said, I take full responsibility. I, I, I genuinely think he was surprised at the reaction, you know, whether he should have been or not. And, but he's trying to weigh in. And um, I don't think it's a damage control thing. I think it's, it's really being responsible with his role as president. So I appreciate that. But I think there's a, a, a much deeper issue that I want to spend the rest of our time on, which is the difference in approach that many black scholars across disciplines have to their academic work and research. So you wrote a response article, which I encourage everyone to check out. It's on um, the Anxious Bench, part of the Pathios blog. And it says, I am a historian on presentism. And you talk about several things in this. One of the things that you talk about is W.E.B. Du Bois and his story of becoming one would call a public scholar, an activist scholar, is so critical because it encapsulates, I think, a lot of why not just you and I, but many uh, historians of color and black historians got into the work. So he was in Atlanta, Georgia. There was the lynching of a black man named Sam Hose. And uh, Du Bois wrote this, or, or he said this in an interview. He said that he passed this man's uh, fingers and toes, which were being exhibited in a store. He passed those. And then he knew that uh, I made up my mind that knowledge wasn't enough. That even if people were ignorant of essential matters which they had to know, they wouldn't correct their actions without more realization of just what the di difficulties were. They had not only to know, but they had to act. And so I changed from studying the Negro problem to what he calls propaganda. <laughs> and he defines that as to letting people know just what the Negro problem meant in what the colored people were suffering and what they were kept from doing. So Du Bois himself was affected by the real life lynching. And it was because of his personal experience with that and his identification with and solidarity with other black people that he said, I cannot just do scholarship for the academy, for the respect of my uh, peers who are also academics. I must do, I must utilize these skills that I have for the betterment of my people and the betterment of the world. And you, you, you tell that story, but you also echo it, you know, in, in an even bigger way in terms of uh, interpreting it as love for neighbors. So anyway, just, just tell us about your article, what you were trying to, to um, convey in your response. In a nutshell, it goes back to, I think the way I think about um, academic work in, in general, I think that the work of the university is is for for the world. Um, so it's not just for me to sit down with historians in my discipline to talk about, and then everything just stays there. Um, I I I 
personally, I mean, I'm I'm involved in the work I am because I think it like I think it's actually important to the way that we live. I think I think we like I think we really do need to understand for us to understand ways forward. We have to understand where we've where we've been um, and we have to understand how we how we how we got to where we were and how we got to where and how we get to where we are. Um, and and so um, and so one of the so one of the points that I that I that I wanted to that I also wanted to press is that, um, you know, many of the many of the particular evils that we see that we see in the past, whether we look at genocides or kind of political political and economic exploitation and things uh, and things like that, we can't we can't treat those things as just kind of one off one off events. Because for me, and this is especially, I mean, this is also just as a Christian, I'm like, people don't, (laughs) people do change, but like people don't change. As in like, we, like we have the same, we have the same kinds of desires, the same kinds of, um, like those, those are, those are things that we have in common. Um, But given, given our particular context, given the resources that we have, we're going to we're going to use what we've got in different ways, and one of the things that one of the ways that that historians can really help us is they can is they can show us, hey, this person, given these circumstances in this in this setting, acted in this way. Here are the ways in which those things work to here are the ways in which those things work together. Um, you know, when I think about, for example, um, I keep I keep going back to the I keep going back to the to to slavery, and I make this point: people will refer to pro-slavery apologists as kind of men and women of their of their time same thing about for example pro-lynching pro-lynching folks and one of the points that i want folks to remember is that everybody in that time was not saying that (laughs) everybody in that time wasn't wasn't saying that so 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 it actually it actually does the folks of that time an injustice for you to for you to for you to look at what are and I'll say this as a moral judgment what are evil ideas and to say that those are ideas of the time and I'm like no 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 and if those are the only ideas that you're seeing in that time you might be looking in the wrong place mm. um and so granted this is this is the, this may just be an aspect of my own uh the hope that comes alongside the pessimism is that um I don't think I, I, I don't think there's any time when uh, when the tears when the tares are growing and the wheat and the wheat is not. Um, yeah. And so um, and it's just that you may have to ask different questions to get at to get at that, which is one of the reasons why I think it's 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 actually really, really good that the that the that the discipline is expanding to ask these to ask these different questions because it's going to lead to the unearthing of sources that that people weren't looking for but that we probably should have been looking for and if we look and don't find it then that's its own that's its own thing for us to talk about but um but yeah in in a nutshell that's 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 one of the things that i was trying to communicate that point you made about moral judgments i think is close to the crux of this entire conversation is that the people who are decrying what they call presentism, I think on some level fear or are concerned that present day moral standards are being unfairly applied to the historical actors. But your point is that 
Well, actually, even in that era that you're studying, there were people making moral judgments that would have disagreed with, say, slaveholders or segregationists or pro-lynching whomever, right? And it's actually part of our historical task to name those other viewpoints. And that means you're not even as a historian at that point making a moral judgment. You're simply saying, actually, there are people who applied different ethical standards and came out on different sides on this thing. And I'm simply naming the spectrum or the diversity of views on this particular issue. But even further, what you're also saying is the failure to to hear those voices, to find those voices in the historical record means that you actually have a bias as a historian, that you're maybe not asking all the questions that need to be asked, and you're certainly not looking um, for all the sources that could speak to your topic, which is precisely why there's been this emphasis on race, class, gender, and more in the past 40 to 50 years in the historical profession, because for so long, honestly, history was done by white men. And oftentimes white men who wanted explicitly or implicitly to be the for for the US to be the hero of the world story or for particular historical actors or movements to be the heroes and so they valorized the past in a way that wasn't actually honest to the primary sources particularly voices of dissent in their own time right so we you don't even have to import your own modern interpretations you can just look at the breadth of primary sources and see that black church folks were talking about lynching in a very different way than the white press or white church folks or whatever actor you want to name. So I get the concern, right? Let's not simply use history to buttress or bolster our pre-existing ideas, but let's also not fall into the error of thinking that a completely objective dispassionate, arm's length view of the past is even possible, let alone is it preferable? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's the thing. I mean, if you if you really do see, if you really do see history as something that is deeply disconnected to you, then that's then that's easier then that's easier to do. But and I think about this specifically as a Christian historian, I'm bound to the entirety of humanity. And so there is so and 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 not only that, but I have it. I I actually have an I actually have an have an ethical responsibility to the people that I study, specifically to treat them justly. So mm. so 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 in thinking about the opportunity I have to love my neighbor, I'm loving my neighbor not only not only kind of throughout space, but but actually throughout time. Wow. So so it so it's actually it's actually my is actually my love of my of my of my slaveholding neighbor that I that I recognize the depth of that corruption mm. because it actually doesn't it actually doesn't do someone any good for me to for me to for me to treat them as though the evil that they submit themselves to is just well it's just completely outside of them and they had no play. no like it's it's actually an act of love for me to for 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 me to really tease out these are the particular ways in which this evil manifested itself in your life and it, and in the ways that you treated those around you. Um, and so, 
And so really, I said, go, go, like my, what I, what I want my work of, of, of history to be is to be fundamentally a work of, of love. Mm. And, and a big part of loving neighbor is to tell the truth. Gotta tell the truth. About their words, about their actions, about their beliefs. And so I don't think that's what Dr. Sweet was saying. Don't tell the truth, soften the blow. Um, and and this is why I think it was really it was really important. I think in in that first paragraph of the of the apology to say to recognize that he foreclosed the conversation for many members mm. because like once you start to I think once you start to really strictly boundary police in some of the ways that I think in some of the ways that I think he did in saying that certain things are not history. I think there's a I think there's a conversation to be had about hey it may not be the kind of history that I'm doing but this is but this is actually something that actually enriches my work. Mm. Um when we think about when we think about this field um I think it's I think it's I think it's actually much more helpful for us to have and and this this will be controversial for some people who want to keep want to keep the lines between history and economics and political science and all this stuff super separate but I'm like for us to understand how people work, which is, I think, like a big part of what what history is, you got to understand, you got to understand economics, you got to understand political science, religion, all of these things, all of these reasons that people, um, all these reasons that people make the decisions that they make or reasons that people understand or or uh, reasons that people understand their choices to be to be what they are. Um you 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 you've got to incorporate you've you've got to incorporate those other those other those other disciplines um i mean for us to be i think good historians we we've, we've got to be we we've got to be conversant with a number of with a number of different of different fields um i mean it would it, it would open up so many more opportunities for for collaboration <laughs> and, for, and and like like I, which is which is something that like some academics want to you know you just want to kind of go do your own thing but um but if but if but if we're really if we're really insistent on our work having significant impact on the world in which we live collaboration is going to be necessary it's going to be necessary for us to be continuing to learn even as even as we're giving these like expert testimonies that's right that's right and there what you're saying is there's a certain level of multidisciplinarity built into <laughs> historical studies. And we also see this demonstrated again by scholars such as Du Bois who dipped in sociology, history, ethnography, all, a lot of different things. Um, the last thing I'll say is this entire conversation illustrates the difference between uh, Black studies and Black scholars doing academic studies and what has historically been a predominantly white profession, and still is. Uh, black scholars and black studies in general has often taken the frame that objectivity is not only not possible, it's not necessarily desirable, because the mission or one of the aims and objectives is to make the world a better place. Uh, in 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 your words and the words of the article, to love your neighbor well, um, to speak of justice, and so there's an urgency, an immediacy, an experiential aspect to these things that propels our work. 
Now, to me, the question of what makes good scholarship is not whether there is a bias. There is a bias. It's it's simple. It's all scholarship. It's what we should should have learned in in high school English class. You make an argument and you support it with evidence. And then in academic scholarship, you have peers in the same discipline applying the same tools of that discipline to evaluate whether you backed your thesis up with the right evidence, whether you supported it, whether it's strong. That to me is the whole thing. So that's how I write a book like The Color of Compromise, which is very clearly making a case that more often than not, white Christians compromised with, with racism instead of confronting it. You may hate that thesis. It doesn't matter. The question is, did I support it with evidence, compelling evidence? And do you have a better argument or a way to refute it with your own evidence? Why isn't that the conversation we're having? Why isn't that the standard rather than, and he used this phrase, I believe, in his letter, identity politics, which is only identity politics when you're talking about marginalized and historically oppressed groups, interestingly enough. So to me, the safeguard or the standard is the peer review process, is using the tools of the discipline, is making a, a hypothesis, a, an interpretation, which all historical study is interpretation, and then proving it. Like that's that. That's the main thing. That's what I, it is. <laughs> that's so, what it is. brother Malcolm, uh, you're an awesome thought partner on this. Uh, again, encouraging folks to read your article on the Anxious Bench blog. I am a historian, and then on presentism is uh, the rest of the title. Um, thank you so much for your passion, your scholarship. I cannot wait for your book and books to come out. And I know this is going to be uh, just one of many conversations because <laughs> somebody else is going to hurl the presentism of course. <laughs> grenade and uh, we will have to deal with the aftermath. So thank you for joining us on Footnotes. Thank you, brother. Good to be with you. This episode was brought to you in part by the Lord of Spirits podcast. Many Christians yearn to break free of the influence of secular materialism and to understand the union of the seen and unseen worlds as made by God. What is the spiritual world like? Tune in wherever you get your podcasts.